are the Money Minutes. With next week's budget, the government will return to its theme of jobs, jobs, jobs. But with the same government trying to pick winners in manufacturing and infrastructure, is this really the right way to go about it? Great to have your company on another episode of the Money Minutes. And look, as we're in the shadow of the forthcoming football finals and the federal budget, I think it's just sensible to look at how our society's coped with a year like no other in living memory. The fact is, we're starting to adapt. We're all starting to sort of come out of it. Adapt our behaviour according to the virus, recognising that it's going to be almost impossible to eradicate it unless eventually a vaccine comes. But even that might not be any time soon. The consequences of the virus have been to overturn business from those that simply won't survive or those who are now surviving because of government support. We've then also got virtually 0% interest rates and now hundreds of billions of dollars of budget deficits and additional government debt for future generations to manage, your kids, your grandkids. One aspect of the response to the virus is that more people are becoming more dependent on government. The first cry to me, it seems, when something ever goes wrong is, well, what's the government going to do about this? Yet, as I've said many times here, the government is not always the answer. In fact, most times it's not the answer. For a public health response, sure. You know, for security, yes. But for the long-term recovery of the economy and jobs, well, that needs the biggest employers, private enterprise and small business, to have the confidence to invest and to employ. And maybe the government, with its latest initiative to spend almost $1.5 billion over four years to improve supply chains and business upgrades to local manufacturing in six separate areas, maybe that needs to be examined. Those areas are resource technology and critical minerals. Now, for that, I think you can read lithium processing. It's much needed for defence capabilities here and in the United States because China right now does it all. There's food and beverages, medical products, recycling and clean energy, defence and space. But just a few things here. I do get a sense that some of this policy is not only motivated by the need to get more manufacturing jobs, but do remember manufacturing accounts for less than 7% of total jobs, 1 in 14. Most people employed, that's about 14%, 1 in 7, is in healthcare and social assistance. In other words, people paid directly or subsidised by government to look after others. The next biggest is retail workers, that's around 1 in 10, and construction, around 1 in 11 workers. And though I genuinely believe Australia's manufacturing does need a jolt in the arm, the government effectively is backing the narrow interest areas of the seventh largest employment group in Australia. Now, as I've said about infrastructure, it is really hard, I think, for government to pick winners. And on that subject, shortly, I'll speak with one of Australia's preeminent economists, that's Henry Ergas. I tracked him down in Paris on whether the government has the skills, or indeed the mandate, to be so specific in who and what it backs. Instead, I think it's really important that government gives priority to creating the right environment for tax, for industrial relations, energy and trade to ensure local entrepreneurs have the right conditions to be more confident to make calculated bets with their capital. Though this week, that's kind of where Prime Minister Scott Morrison hinted that he wants to go. The biggest question is whether the Parliament and crossbenchers will actually want his government to go there. So here's some audio from his speech about boosting manufacturing, courtesy of the ABC. Our practical strategy has three components. Firstly, create a business environment where our manufacturers can be more competitive. Secondly, to align resources to build scale in areas of competitive strength. And thirdly, to secure sovereign capability in areas of national interest. 
That's our plan. And we'll be investing an additional $1.5 billion in specific industry measures over and above what we'll be doing in tax and energy and infrastructure and the like to back our plan in in next week's budget. Now, firstly, creating a business environment in Australia where our manufacturers can be more competitive. That's foundational, as I've said. You can invest all the resources you like in industry programs, but if taxes are too high, if industrial relations systems are too complicated, if the adoption of uh, digital technology is patchy, if energy is too expensive, if approvals take too long and are too costly, if the roads are clogged and employees don't have the right skills, and you're shut out of overseas markets, well, you're wasting your time. That's why the, all of those things, in correcting all of those things, is so important. For manufacturing to be successful in Australia, all manufacturers, we must become a more competitive place for manufacturers to do business, whether it's in aluminium smelting in Gladstone, steel processing in Port Kembla and Whaler, ethanol production at Shoalhaven Heads down on the south coast, fertiliser production in Mount Isa, aerospace at Fisherman's Bend for Boeing, or ships at Port Adelaide and Henderson in Western Australia. And that's what our job maker plan is all about, creating the right incentives and enablers for businesses to compete so they can create more jobs and keep more Australians employed. Our broader job maker plan is the foundation of our manufacturing strategy, benefiting all manufacturers. So of all those areas being back, there is one I do wonder about, and that's fuel. Australia now is increasingly reliant on the Singapore mega refineries for its fuel supplies. We've lost our independence when it comes to the manufacture of the basic raw ingredient for our transport system. Now, this debate's been around for a long time, but with increasing tensions in shipping lanes around Southeast Asia, there's no doubt this is a key national vulnerability, perhaps until electric vehicles become the norm and not the specialised vehicles of today. Space amongst those group, I really get. Our universities have real skills in this area. A couple of companies that I follow, one of them is Cleos Space, I think have some real potential. But what about the idea of backing winners? Who really comes out in front? Just win, baby, win. All I do is win, 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 no matter what. Got money on my mind, I can never get it up. And every time I step up in the building, everybody hands go up. And they stay there. Into this conversation, I want to bring one of Australia's most esteemed economists, Henry Ergas. Now, you may know Henry because of his column in the Australian newspaper, but amongst other things, he's worked for the OECD, uh, what is now the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission. Um, he's been at, say, for example, Harvard University. He taught at the uh, Kennedy School of Government. But also importantly, here in Australia, more recently, he's been the Professor of Infrastructure Economics at the University of Wollongong and also was a Senior Economic Advisor to Deloitte in Australia. I've found him in Paris, of all places, and he joins me now. Henry, many thanks for your time. Thanks, Ross. Pleasure to be here. You and I have chatted many times over the years, and I'm just fascinated at the moment about the response of government to the pandemic and to the economic downturn. From your point of view, do you believe that governments are getting the spending right? Are there economic levers that they're pulling right now? Are they the right ones for the right times? 
I think we've gone through two phases, Ross. I think the first phase, which was in many respects indispensable, was the phase of compensating people for effectively shutting down livelihoods. And so when uh, the lockdowns began, it was clear that was going to have devastating effects on employment and on many businesses. And it was entirely appropriate for government, having imposed uh, the restrictions, to uh, to compensate those the restrictions affected, just as if they had impounded or taken your house so as to build a road, they ought to compensate you for that. So that compensation element was the first phase, and it involved programs such as the Job Keeper program and the Myriad Business Support program. We're now really entering a second phase, which is the attempt to support and promote a recovery. And the difficulty in that context is that we know very little about how the economy will behave as the current restrictions are eased, assuming that sooner or later they can be eased. This is not an ordinary recession by any means. In an ordinary recession, uh, there's a build-up of problems in the economy, and those problems in the economy eventually lead to reductions in supply and demand, and it takes a while for uh, the economy to, uh, to, to, to overcome the accumulated difficulties. It takes a while for the price system, for instance, to adjust. And we know quite a lot about how economies experience that adjustment process. And while there are many different views about quite what the right response is, we're familiar with the tools that should be used and have some guidance from earlier episodes of what the impact of those tools might be. In this case, the economy, albeit slowing, was doing reasonably well, uh, or at least was not in crisis before the lockdowns began. And so we haven't had a recession as such, we've had a repression of uh, demand and supply. And we don't really know enough about how an economy will respond when that repression ends to have a great deal of guidance about the effectiveness of alternative policy instruments. And so I have a lot of sympathy for policymakers who are grappling with this conundrum uh, and some concern that they will reach back into the arsenal that they typically use for conventional recessions to deal with what is a very unconventional downturn in economic activity. Okay, because one of the issues in your expertise uh, in infrastructure economics that worries me is that the very behaviour of our community may have changed as a result of the lockdowns and the coronavirus. In other words, the need um, to, to, to go to an office all the time. 
the need to, say, for example, always be on transport. These things might change, and yet, as you point out, the typical response would be to go out there and build roads and railways and try and boost up your infrastructure, even, say, for example, the movement of population over international borders could actually change as a result of the coronavirus. And so surely right now, as the government says it will have an infrastructure and jobs budget coming up, they've got to be a little bit careful to think about what the future of Australia will look like post this pandemic. And that, as you point out, is a a very hard judgment to make so soon after the pandemic has taken hold. Exactly. And of course, we don't know what's going to happen to the world economy either. It's not really the Australian economy. So we know very little about both the domestic and the international context and how they will evolve. But in terms of infrastructure, I I very much share your concerns. Uh, we simply don't know what the demand for infrastructure is going to be in the future. And many of the factors which affect it are currently freighted with great uncertainty, uh, going from the most basic, such as long-run population, given the fact that uh, there may be enduring impacts on migration, uh, through to the level and structure of economic activity. We have claims and forecasts, which may or may not be accurate, that we will continue to see a much higher level of working from home. We also have claims that uh, we will see much more online shopping relative to bricks and mortar shopping. Uh, We may also see in transport some substitution from public to private modes. So with all of those uncertainties, it's terribly difficult to assess range of projects. I would add a couple of additional caveats. The first caveat is that already as we entered this period, we had a very large number of infrastructure projects underway. So there's a great deal of capacity expansion that uh, has occurred recently and is continuing to occur. And so we don't know what the supply demand balance for those existing programs will already look like. And the second caveat I would add is that if we should have learned one thing from the GFC, it's that infrastructure is a a very long-term proposition, Uh, particularly in Australia, where the planning process is extremely intricate and where there's a a relatively small number of major contractors uh, and where there's competition between public infrastructure projects and private infrastructure projects, particularly in the resource sector. Um, all of those factors mean that you don't, that infrastructure is never a quick fix. Additionally, it's a mistake, in my view, to think that infrastructure is a huge jobs creator. Uh, contemporary infrastructure is extraordinarily capital intensive. Uh, The days when 
the unemployed would gather at Trades Hall and be given picks and shovels and sent out to dig up roads. Uh, those days disappeared long ago and they're not coming back. Uh, what's evolved in infrastructure today, most of the inputs that are used in infrastructure, if they're not capital goods, they're highly skilled labor. They're engineers, they're land use planners, uh, everything associated with very complex projects. And so to think that you are going to get uh, a jobs boom out of infrastructure is, in, in my view, uh, ill-conceived. That doesn't mean that there aren't infrastructure projects that might be worth doing, but they're not the mega projects. They're typically the smallest scale projects involved with maintenance, repair, targeted upgrade, targeted de-bottlenecking, small-scale stuff that we don't do enough of and that we should do rather than launching a new generation of mega-projects whose effects will only be felt in 15 or 20 years. Because back in 2009, you and Alex Robson wrote a paper called The Social Losses from Inefficient Infrastructure Projects. Now, quite clearly, the problem of governments making misjudgments about what infrastructure should be built, that they literally almost pick winners. Uh, The real problem is, of course, that the taxpayer ultimately carries the burden through the inefficiency that's created by those infrastructure projects. So it's not a case of just build anything for the sake of building. It's a matter of being highly targeted, especially, as you say, when the capital and indeed the taxpayer dollars are so vital in a recessionary period. Uh, very much so, especially given the state of the public finances, both at a Commonwealth level and at a state level, you would hope that there would be a degree of prudence in terms of how they use scarce resources. Um, What worries me in that context, Ross, is the argument going around that these things are essentially free, that everything is now free. We have surplus labor, so that has no opportunity cost. Uh, interest rates are very low, close to zero, so capital has no uh, opportunity cost. Well, those arguments are, in my view, extremely dangerous and uh, analytically confused. To begin with, the sort of labor that is used in infrastructure and the capital goods that are used in infrastructure are hardly free. They have a very high opportunity cost. If you use skilled engineers and planners to build infrastructure, you're taking them away from the rest of the economy and from projects which will earn the private sector rate of return. You're just increasing a lot of cost for the private sector. Uh, the type of labor that's employed is not the type that is walking the street. Uh, and as far as capital and interest rates are concerned, uh, you know, it's one thing to say the interest rate is zero, but even were the interest rate zero, and in real terms, it's only zero because of heavy central bank intervention, which is distorting uh, underlying the underlying cost of capital. But even putting that aside, even if they were zero, if a project costs $100 to build, and at the end of the project, it's only worth $60, you've lost those $40. And here we're not talking 
just hundreds of dollars. We're talking millions and billions of dollars. And so even with interest rates zero, if the principle of the project is not worth at its completion anywhere near its cost, that's a burden on the community that's every bit as great as having high real interest rates. And from that, I'm suggesting that the case example number one, case study number one for that, would be the National Broadband Network, the NBN, $60 billion dollars to, to build, and you could argue if a commercial buyer were to acquire that today, they would probably pay, well, 10 to $15 billion for it tops because that at that rate, they'd start to get a, a reasonable rate of return from it. Yes, I mean, the NBN is a very controversial project and uh, undoubtedly an extraordinarily costly one. In fact, that's why already now uh, the, uh, the NBN prices, uh, which are far from recovering its overall costs, uh, its prices are extremely high by international terms. Uh, and it's true that uh, the NBN performed uh, well uh, in the face of the increase in demand, which occurred uh, during the lockdown, but so did many much less costly networks in the other advanced economies. There isn't much evidence, if any, that the Australian network, uh, particularly the Australian fixed network, performed better than comparable fixed networks in uh, the European or North American economies. So uh, it was a very expensive project, it would have been much better to do it in a staged, more prudent way. Uh, what we see now is uh, that uh, the, the, the strategy that was implemented after the coalition came to office, that strategy has proved very successful. It's meant that we were able to get deployment fairly quickly to virtually everyone, and when demand peaked to at very low cost, at much lower cost than would have been involved originally, uh, target areas where there should be upgrades. So I, 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 I think that whilst the project uh, initially was not as well conceived as it should have been, uh, we're in a much better place today, uh, thanks to the changes that were made, and we can now progressively upgrade the network where it needs to be upgraded, which is what should have been done from the outset. So while people dream about the great infrastructure projects of Australia, piping water from the north of Australia to the centre of Australia to try and drought-proof our agricultural regions to the Snowy 2.0, which appears to be going ahead, and there's been argument even in the past week about uh, the merits and the returns from that Snowy 2.0, to even then suggestions of um, high-speed train projects between our major uh, metropolitan cities, all all in the name of building and just building something that has a lasting legacy. What you're saying is that in any of these uh, dreamlike projects, you've still got to be highly conscious of who uses it, 
what the longer term return is and what is the cost to today's society, but also societies of the future. Yes, that's exactly right. And there's a difference between having visions and having hallucinations. We want to have vision, but we want to have it with the reality principle firmly in place. And that's very different from hallucinating about great projects of the utopian kind that might be. And uh, you know, to, to my mind, Ross, what's happening at the moment is that when you look around the world, virtually every country is reaching back into its historic repertoire of responses. So the French, for example, uh, say they will have, uh, this, is, this is the occasion on which they will finally come to dominate the world's high technology, having tried and failed uh, in the past. They'll pick all the right winners, they'll have national champions, and so on and so forth. Uh, 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 um, we, uh, our national uh, repertoire has for many years been heavily oriented to uh, nation-building infrastructure projects, uh, some of which have worked, many of which have not. Uh, and so the lesson to draw from that is not that we shouldn't, that we shouldn't do anything. It's not certainly not that we should do nothing. But that the mere fact that we are where we are doesn't eliminate the need for prudence. It doesn't eliminate our responsibility to present taxpayers, but also to future generations of taxpayers who will bear the bulk of the burden for what has been a very, very costly uh, episode in our national history. Uh, uh, perhaps unavoidably so, but uh, that has left a real legacy that someone will have to pick up in the future. And so what I hope is that as they set about planning this strategy for recovery, uh, they will learn those lessons and show an even greater sense of responsibility than we have shown in the past. Can I just say, Henry, it is terrific talking to you about this because this is a sort of conversation that not many Australians, I think, have, and yet they should. And it's only by coming to an economist such as yourself who has had their, their life in not only studying public policy but also even specialising in infrastructure where you'll recognise that ultimately uh, our children will maybe one day understand the importance of politicians today, policymakers today, making the right decisions as to what will happen with either taxpayers' money or taxpayers' borrowed money as it comes. And Henry Ugas, I really appreciate having a chat with you today. Thank you very much, Ross. It's been a real pleasure. So that's it for the Money Minutes for this episode. My thanks to Henry Ergas and the fact that we had to track him down in Paris. And thank you for taking the time to listen. You can always give us your feedback via your podcast app, whether it's Apple, Google, Spotify, or now Amazon. This has been a Talent Corp production. I'm Ross Greenwood, and these are the Money Minutes. And they say that-